0: So one of the metaphors that scripture uses for the church is a body. So a body has multiple parts, and all of these parts serve a specific function and a role. And a church is made up of individual people that all have different giftings and serve different roles in the church. And the same thing applies to leadership. So within the church, there are multiple functions of leadership. There's multiple types of leadership in the church, And so it's not just pastors that are leaders in the church, though they have a distinct role to play. And and the thing is, is like with a body, like if my body was only made up of an eyeball, one, that'd be a little weird, but it would hard to function in other ways. And the same thing with the church. If only the pastors are leading, if they're the only ones that are taking responsibility to serve in the church, then the body is not going to function the way it needs to be. The church will not be healthy. And so this morning, we're going to consider multiple aspects of leadership by looking at the office of deacon. So last week, we talked about pastors and their role and and the qualifications for pastors. And this morning, we're going to focus on deacons because just as it's important to have a healthy and thriving culture of pastoral leadership, it's important for us to have a healthy and thriving culture of deacon leadership as well. So here's the main point for us this morning. Healthy churches... Are served by godly deacons. Healthy churches are served by godly deacons. And I wanna get into this idea by looking at three things. First, I wanna talk about the office and the task of deacons. Then I wanna talk about the qualifications for deacons. And then finally, I wanna talk about what it looks like for us as a church to have a culture of service. So let's talk about the office and task of deacons first. So the word deacon in scripture comes from the Greek word diakonos, and this just means servant. So the word is used two ways in scripture. So one, just this general sense of a servant. So if you serve someone in any way, you are a deacon in this sense. You are a diakonos, you're a servant in the church. So anytime you cook a meal for someone because they're sick or they just had a new baby, you're a diakonos. Anytime you go help someone build a retaining wall at their house, you're a diakonos. Anytime you help someone move, you're a diaconos. Anytime you babysit for someone so a mom can get a break or she can go run some errands, you're a diaconos, if you help someone financially. There's a limitless number of ways that we can be servants in the church. So that's one way the scripture uses this word. The other is this official office. So we see this in 1 Timothy 3:8. Paul's addressing those who serve in a specific role, office of deacon. And then if you look at the book of Philippians, in the first verse of Philippians, Paul addresses his letter to the, the, de- the pastors, the overseers, and the deacons of the church at Philippi. So he's addressing those who are in at this office. And the office of deacon we see established in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 6, if you want to turn there, go ahead. We'll, we'll have the verses up on the screen. But I want to just briefly outline where this role came from and why it is important in the church. So Acts 6.1 says this, Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's a quick summary of what's happening. The church in Jerusalem, so the first church, is blowing up. God is saving people. The church is getting very big, and the practical needs of that church are growing as well. And so we see in Acts 4 and 5 that what was happening is that believers would sell property and things that they own, and they would bring the money to the apostles, and the apostles would take that money and distribute it to people in the church as they had need. And so what's happening here is as the church is growing, the needs are growing, the, the distribution is getting a little off kilter. So whatever reason, the apostles are kind of dropping the ball here because there are people being overlooked. There's so much work to do. And so what the apostles need to do is to figure out, hey, what's, what are we, we going to do here? Because the church is saying, hey, look, people are getting overlooked. There are people who need these, these funds to survive, specifically widows, and it's not happening. And so, hey, apostles, we need you to do something about this. And so here's how they respond, verses 2 through 6. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the Apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So here's what the Apostles recognized hey, we have a particular role in the church. Our role is to lead the church, and particularly through teaching and prayer. And so it wasn't that serving tables and ba- meeting the practical needs was beneath the apostles. This was a matter of, hey, what's our role? What's our priority in that role? See, they're human beings. They can't do everything. And it's part probably the reason why people were falling through the cracks. And so they had to prioritize their task and said, hey, our job is this, to teach and to pray and to, to lead in this way. And so we need others to serve in this other way. And so church, identify seven men who are great at leading and can do this for you. Then bring them to us, we'll commission them. And so this is what happens, and the office of deacon is born. And so here's an an important piece of this. The apostles just didn't punt on the issue. They didn't go, hey, you know, we preach, we pray, that's our role, you guys go go figure this out we don't really need to worry about that. No, they said, this is part of being in the church. This is part of the ministry of the church. This needs to happen. And so we need to identify people to do this. And so the the apostles were still exercising leadership, but they just delegated this responsibility to other people. And so scripture doesn't limit deacons to just distributing funds, but here we see sort of the groundwork and the framework for the deaconate role. Deacons serve practical needs and practical ministry in the church. They administer sort of the tasks that need to go on in the church. They're overseeing and leading in this way. And so I want to unpack the nature of the office just a little bit here by kind of contrasting it with a pastor and a deacon, just so you're clear we're clear as a church, how these roles are different and how they're supposed to function. So as I said, deacons lead through practical service and administration and execution of tasks. Pastors lead through overall organizational oversight, so leading the church overall, through teaching and equipping and protecting and counseling. We saw that last week. The office of a deacon is not a ruling or governing office. That is for the pastor. Deacons serve under the authority of a pastor. They're not assistant pastors. They're assistant to pastors. A couple of you guys got the office reference. And it's important to understand that because maybe some of you have come out of church backgrounds where there was a deacon board that maybe oversaw the elders or the pastors, or maybe the deacon board and the elder board sort of went toe-to-toe and kind of had this like equal role. We believe that that deviates from the New Testament. In the New Testament, you have the elders, the pastors who are leading, and the deacons serve underneath them. But both roles are vital. Both roles are important. And here's another point we need to be very, very clear on. The office of pastor is given the responsibility for exercising spiritual authority. The role of deacon is not. Pastors exercise spiritual authority. Deacons do not. Their authority is different. Deacons are given leadership and places of authority to oversee practical needs and tasks and ministry. So their authority is administrative, not spiritual. And this is why we affirm that both men and women can and should serve as deacons. Because deacons do not exercise a spiritual authority, we think that this is open, we believe that this is open to both men and women. And so let's get into this just a little bit. So one of the verses that often gets kind of pulled into this discussion of whether women can serve as deacons is 1 Timothy 3.11. Here's what the verse reads. "'Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things.'" Here's why this verse is both helpful and not helpful in this discussion. One, it's helpful because it does outline sort of characteristics for women serving in this role or, or connected to deacons. The way it's a little bit unhelpful is because it's not entirely clear what Paul means. <laughs> there are three ways that this verse gets interpreted. One, it's just straight up, here are the qualifications for a deacon's wife. So if you're going to be a deacon, your wife needs to be these things. But this raises the question, why would Paul give qualifications for a deacon's wife and not an elder's wife when an elder carries more authority? Just a question. Not going to answer that, but just a question. (laughs) Here's the second way that this gets interpreted. Some argue that Paul is actually creating a third office. So you have pastor, you have deacon, and then you have deaconess. And the reason they argue that is because of the word likewise. So within the structure of 1 Timothy 3, you have Paul talk about pastors, then he says deacons likewise, so he makes this transition, then women likewise, or wives likewise. So they argue, hey, every time he uses likewise, he's kind of transitioning a category of office. Some people argue that. The third way that people interpret this verse is that the word wives should be translated women, because the word in the Greek is actually just the generic term for woman, But here's the challenge with that. That word can be translated wives and it can be translated woman depending on context. And in the context of 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, you can make arguments for both. So again, verse 11 is a little tricky. But here's what all, pretty much all, scholars and commentators agree on. No matter how you interpret verse 11, 1, 2, or 3, none of them automatically exclude women from serving as deacons. Here's why. Because the verse that really sets whether or not women can serve as deacons is not 1 Timothy 3.11, but 1 Timothy 2.11, which we looked at two weeks ago, where Paul talks about teaching and authority and saying that men are to fill roles of teaching authoritatively and authority in the church. So that is the verse that actually sets for whether or not we believe women can serve in the church. And so let me just do a little quick callback to that verse. Remember what we said, that the kind of authority Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 2.11 is very specific. He's not just talking about a very, he's not just kind of this general sense of authority. It's very specific. It's spiritual authority. And he says, within the role of spiritual authority, those who carry spiritual authority in the church, that is exercised by pastors. And men are called to be pastors because of the unique authority that it has, that it, that it has. And so what this means is Paul does not have the role of deacon in view in First Timothy 2.11. Here's another reason we know that. He talks about teaching, and deacons are not called to teach. In the qualifications of deacons, able to teach is not one of them. Deacons certainly can teach. I mean, Stephen was an amazing teacher. He got stoned for giving such a great sermon. Philip was an amazing evangelist. So deacons can teach, but because they do not exercise spiritual authority, they're not called to teach. And so Paul is very specific about who he has in mind in 1 Timothy 2.11, pastors. So when we're clear about the distinction between the kind of authority and role that pastors and deacons have, we recognize that men, yes, are called to be pastors, but when the office of deacon, there is incredible freedom for both men and women to serve. Now, church history is a little helpful here too, because from early on in the church, women served in this role. They served as deacons. Now, how that was practiced has looked different throughout the centuries, even from some of the way that we do it. But the church has always recognized there's freedom here. There's freedom for women to serve in this role, and that's why we embrace that both men and women can and should serve as deacons. Deacons and pastors, distinct roles with distinct responsibilities and distinct types of authority, but both absolutely vital for a thriving and healthy church scripture does not give pastors permission to just say hey we preach we teach we pray we counsel we shepherd and not care about the practical needs like we are to care like pastors need to care about that need to care that these things are happening that practical needs are being met people are being served and loved and the ministries of the church are going off well And so if Paul and I and whoever else serves as a pastor in this church are not raising up godly deacons to serve, we're not doing our jobs. And so it's absolutely vital that First City Church has a healthy and thriving deacon team so that the practical needs of the church are met, so that people are cared for and served and supported and loved. It's absolutely vital that we have a healthy and thriving deacon team. So that the ministry of the church and the the, the practical tasks that take place are done well. That the people who are serving underneath those deacons are deployed well and using their gifts well. And underneath a good leadership team of deacons that the church is run decently and in order. And so it is our heart to have a thriving and growing deacon team at this church. And I'm thankful for the four deacons that we have at this point. Who have given their really given their lives to the church in ways that show, hey, they're committed to loving and serving you all, and so that's kind of the, the outline of the tasks and the qualification or the task in the office. Now let's look at the qualifications of deacon, because like the passage that we saw last week with pastors, Paul puts tremendous emphasis on the character of the person serving in the office. God cares deeply about leadership in the church. He cares about who is leading. He cares about the character of leaders in his church. Because competency and skill, necessary, good. But competency and skill without character, at best, is shallow leadership, limited leadership. And at worst, it's destructive. And so character matters. Also, there is a remarkable similarity between the qualifications for a pastor character-wise and the qualifications for a deacon character-wise. What this means is isn't there's two tiers of godliness in the church. There isn't the super spiritual godly pastors and a little bit less spiritual deacons and a little bit less spiritual everybody else. We're all called to the same thing. We're all called to godliness in the same way. Really the only difference in godliness between pastors and deacons and everybody else should be calling and gifting. It should not be a question of godliness. So here's how I want to frame understanding the qualifications for us as we think about deacons. Deacons are those that, rather than having the character of consumers and critics, have the character of those committed. And so in some ways, you know, you and I are all consumers, we, we have our things where we, we engage certain things just to consume. So we, we have our grocery stores we like to go to. We have, you know, our, our gyms that we like to go to, or our parks or our restaurants. And we have our favorites because those things meet our needs, because we like the way that they do things. They provide a certain thing that we want. But what happens when it doesn't go the way we want it? Like, we turn from consumer to critic very quickly. If if, if the grocery store that I go to doesn't have the sale that I want or it has run out of the thing that I need, well, then I start criticizing it. If the gym that I go to, and I've been kind of wrestling this myself, I switched gyms earlier this year, and it doesn't really have the the things that I want. And so I have this crisis every time I go in. Do I want to stay at this gym? Do I really want to? The restaurant we go to gets us our food a little bit late or the service isn't exactly on par and we become critics, So it's very easy for us to live in this space of consumer and critic. But here's what also happens. If we really love a place, like if I really love my grocery store, I really love that restaurant, I really love the gym that I go to, I'm willing to put up with things. I'm willing to allow things to slide. I'm willing to give them grace. That shows I'm committed. That shows that I've moved from just being a consumer and a critic and I'm actually committed to this place and I want it to succeed. That is the heart of a deacon. A deacon isn't a consumer of the church or a critic of the church. They're committed to the church. This is what we see in the qualifications. Deacons must be dignified, which means worthy of respect or serious and worthy. Because deacons have the character of those committed to the church, the way that they do their ministry, the way that they work in the church, shows that they take the responsibility seriously shows that they're committed to the church. They're not passive and lazy and sloppy. They care about the work. They care about the quality. The way that they treat people that are excuse me, serving underneath them, they want to see those people thrive. They're not heavy-handed. They're not angry. They're not pushy. They're not even passive when it comes to people. No, they care about the people that are underneath them because we all know how frustrating it is to work under sloppy, lazy, passive leaders that don't care about the work or care about you? Like a a, a culture of a place that has those kinds of leaders isn't going to thrive. It actually crushes morale. It lowers standards. And it discourages the heck out of everyone. But deacons, because they're committed to the church and because of the kind of work that they do is quality and because of the way that they treat and love other people, here's what happens. People respect them. They're, they're, they're respected, they're dignified because people look at them and say, I honor the way that you do your work. I honor the way that you treat people. I respect you. And when you have deacons serving in that way, the church thrives because people want to serve under leaders like that. People want to do ministry with people like that because people like that inspire you to do ministry. They encourage you to do ministry. And so dignified leaders bring a health to the church. They bring energy to the church. And so deacons are to be committed and dignified. Deacons are also those whose commitment leads them to exercise self-control. So we talked a little bit about self-control last week, but I want to just highlight a few things. Verses 8 and 11 show some of the ways that deacons are supposed to exercise self-control. Over the tongue, control over their bodily cravings, to show wisdom and discernment, and control over the desire for money. So here's what those verses say. Deacons, likewise, must not be double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, not slanderers, but sober-minded faithful in all things. So to be double-tongued means that you aren't committed to people. You're consuming people. Here's what I mean. To be double-tongued means I'll say one thing to one person and another thing to another person because I want these people to like me. I need their affirmation. I need them to see me in a certain way. And so I'm going to talk to them in the way that gets that from them. So I'm consuming them. They're not people. They're means to an end. And so I'll be double-tongued. Slanders, those are people who destructively criticize other people, whether it's lying about them or talking about them in such a way that doesn't ever extend grace. Talking about them in such a way that, hey, all you're going to see is the bad side of the situation. And so slanderers are critics, double-tongued, slandering leaders, the destruction that they can wreck through a church. Because if you have double-tongued, slandering leaders, it promotes a culture of dishonesty and discouragement, fosters a culture of fear, and it creates cliques and disunity in the church. And so double-tongued, slandering leaders are dangerous. No one thrives under such leadership. No one grows. No one is discipled. People are either yes-men or they're slandered and criticized. So it is important that deacons are those who exercise self-control with their tongue. They show a commitment to the church with their tongue and how they speak to other people. Bodily self-control, again, we talked about this last week, but it's again worth mentioning. Drunkenness and other kinds of addiction, whether it's drugs or using food or sugar or whatever, pleasure, entertainment, whatever you are addicted to, all show an ability to control bodily cravings. It shows that you live to be a consumer. I live for pleasure. I live to be a consumer. And if you're addicted to whether it's alcohol or drugs or food or sex or sugar or entertainment, whatever it is, that will seriously impact your ability to serve. It will seriously impact your ability to lead. That addiction will rob you of your intimacy with Christ. It will rob you of your dependence upon the Lord and the Holy Spirit, and it will limit your capacity to serve. And so if there is an inability to control bodily cravings, It will shrink your service in the church. It will shrink your leadership. And the fruit of your leadership will be at best limited, and at worst, it will be corrupted. And here's the other side of this. Lack of bodily control always points to a lack of emotional self-control. Because lack of bodily control, usually what that means is you're trying to bury something You're trying to cover over some kind of pain, something going on inside that you don't want to deal with. And so I'm going to use food. I'm going to use drugs. I'm going to use sex. I'm going to use whatever it is to numb that pain. And here's what happens. If you lack bodily self-control and you step into a position of leadership, you will use leadership in the same way you use food. You will use leadership in the same way that you use alcohol or drugs or anything else. Because you will use leadership and you will use people to fill that void, to numb that pain. And when you use people that way, congratulations, you become a consumer. And so it is important that we are able to exercise bodily and emotionally self-control because if we're not, we become consumers in our leadership. People are not brothers and sisters in Christ who are family that we're on mission with, but objects used to satisfy our desires, cure our insecurity, help us not to feel lonely anymore. Leadership will become a means for me to gain status so I can feel good about myself, prove that I am worthy. That is the character of a consumer. Let me also connect this to what Paul says about family. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Like we talked about last week, how you lead your home will be how you lead the church. So if you are heavy-handed and aggressive and angry at home, you will be that way in the church. If you're passive in your home, you'll be passive in the church. If you don't care about discipleship and spiritual growth in your home, you will not care about discipleship and spiritual growth in the church. But here's the other side of that. If you do not exercise self-control bodily and emotionally, ministry will be an escape. Ministry will be an escape from the home. Home can be very painful. Home can be very hard. And ministry is a way for me to get away from that. Ministry is a way for me to get away from all the challenges at home and I can devote myself to something I actually feel that I'm good at. And I thrive in it and I get validation at church. I don't get validation at home. And so ministry becomes a way to numb pain and to avoid pain. But once again, you've become a consumer. You're using people in the church to numb something inside of you, to kind of fill some void that you're not getting. So what this says is: hey, you've got to first, you've got to deal with your pain. Like we need leaders who, when they feel pain, don't run to food, don't run to ministry, but they go to Jesus and are comforted in Christ so that they can step into the mess and the hurt and the pain of others. But then also we need leaders who are committed at home, committed to discipleship, and the overflow of their discipleship at home should spill into the church and lead in the church. And so there should not be a disconnect. We should see deacons and elders as those, man, they're thriving at home, they're leading well at home, and they're extending that to the church. And so the picture of deacons that Paul paints here are leaders who are not consumers, the committed servants in the church. They aren't using their tongues to cut down, but to build up. They aren't serving to satisfy their own needs and desires, but for the glory of God and the good of others. Deacons are important pace setters. They own the culture. They, they are ones that others can look to and say, hey, here's a model of what we want in the church. And they're having an influence and an impact on others. Because under the service and leadership of godly deacons, The church is going to be well cared for. It's going to be run with excellence, and people are going to grow and thrive. And so it is very important, utterly important, that we have a culture of godly deacons. So now I just want to briefly talk about the culture of service, because really, as I said last week, if we're going to have a culture of godly elders, we have to have an overall culture of godly men. If we're going to have a culture of godly deacons, then the entire church needs to have a culture of godly service. It is on all of us to have this culture so that out of it deacons may arise who are godly because our deacons, our elders, are only going to be as good as the culture of this church. They're they're not going to be above the the culture of this church. They're not going to be able to say, oh, you know, I've sort of escaped the gravity of a, a very unhealthy culture. No, it's going to affect it. And so we all need to own this. We all need to be a part of that. And so if we want godly leaders that cause us to thrive, if we want deacons that serve this way, we all must commit to aspiring to godliness as outlined in 1 Timothy 3. We all have to own this. And so First City Church, I want to remind us of who we are in Christ. I want to remind us of our identity as servants. So if you're united to Jesus Christ, your identity is not consumer. Your identity is not critic. Your identity is servant. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 20, So they're having this conversation, they're they're, they're on their way, and this fight breaks out among the disciples about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And James and John, they want a seat at Jesus' left hand and right hand. They even get their mom to ask Jesus for them because they're not, you know, man enough to go ask themselves. And so Jesus has this teachable moment for him, And this is what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is reminding them, hey, look, the world uses positions of power to consume. Power and authority to the world is a way that I can be over people and use people for my own ends. Consumers. And in our sin, we are such consumers. We use positions of power and authority for status to make us feel good about ourselves. We will suffer and sacrifice for more money and more comfort and so that all the preferences in, in my world can meet my needs like all my time and my resources will go go towards my ability to consume. We consume, we consume, we consume. And when people do not meet our needs, when we demand things of people and they don't return that, oh, we criticize. We criticize leaders. We criticize churches. We turn into the harshest critics because of our propensity to consume. And into this flood of consumption, Jesus Pours this bucket of ice cold water on our heads to wake us up, and reminds us of something. He brings this much needed correction. It shall not be so among you. What what, what a powerful thing that Jesus is speaking! You say, "Hey, here's the world. This is how they use power. This is how they they consume." It shall not be so among you, my disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So for you who are in Christ, for you who have been united to Jesus by faith, your identity is that of a servant. It shall not be so among you. You don't live your life to be served, but to serve. Like you give yourself so that others can grow and thrive and flourish. Like the, the, the the trajectory of your life isn't to consume and meet your own needs, but it is to initiate to meet the needs of others. If you are in Jesus Christ, you give your time and your resources that others may thrive and grow and flourish and know Jesus. If you've been called to follow Christ, if you are his disciple, he says, give yourself to build others up in me. Give yourself to build my church. He also calls us to be servants in this world. As servants in this world, we go into our city, we go into our neighborhoods, and we model the kingdom of God. We put the kingdom of God on display through acts of mercy and compassion and justice. We put the kingdom of God on display as we love people in a sacrificial way, and we point them to Jesus Christ. This is our call church. This is who we are in Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, is this models our Savior. This models Jesus Christ himself. See, Jesus, who is God, stepped from heaven and put on a human body. Jesus, who is pure and holy, stepped into our mess, our sin, our corruption to love us. Jesus, who is perfectly righteous and innocent of all sin, stood in our place and took our punishment on himself. Jesus Christ, who deserves to be served in all ways, stepped into this world not to be served, but to serve. And the glorious news of the gospel is this. Because Jesus Christ served you, you're forgiven. Because Jesus Christ served you, you've been cleansed. Because Jesus Christ has served you, you have a brand new identity as child of God. And because Jesus is so generous with his love, generous with his, all the riches that, that he possesses, he's poured out his spirit on you. And he's empowered you to go and walk as a servant in his world. This is who we are in Christ And because Jesus is the ultimate service, because Jesus has set this example for us, we commit to a culture of godly service in our church. And in conclusion, there is wonderful promise in committed service. This is what 1 Timothy 3.13 tells us. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. See, when we commit ourselves to godly service in the church, you know those who rise to become deacons, we we respect them and we see them as dignified. But if we're all committing to this, we're going to be a relationally healthy church because we're all going to be in good standing with one another, and so there is a wonderful unity that is produced when we commit to godly service in this way. Also, when you commit and serve in godliness, you're going to experience more and more of the grace of Christ. You're going to experience more and more of his power in your life, more and more of transformation, because you're going to learn what it means to depend on God. And what's that? What's going to happen to you? Confidence. Like Your confidence in the Lord is going to grow. Who couldn't use more confidence in the Lord? Like I want my faith to be confident in what Christ has done for me and his power in my life. How do I experience that? How do I grow in that? I serve. I trust in the Lord and I serve. And so there's a wonderful culture that is built when we commit to godly service. So let me end with this. And I said this last week, but I want, to re- I want to repeat it as an ending. Like, men and women, some of you in here, I, you, you, you know you've been called to serve and, and maybe even lead in some ways, and you're doing that, but you're fearful. Like, you feel fear, and, and it sort of cripples you in some ways. In some ways you push through it, but in some ways it's crippling you and holding you back. Can I remind you of the gospel, that Jesus died to set you free from that fear? In perfect love, it casts out fear. He loves you. He's with you. Cast that fear, cast that anxiety onto Christ because he cares for you. And remember, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave is in you. And that is what empowers you to serve. Others of you, you're aware that you're a flawed leader. You've failed. You failed. You look at the ways that you lead and you're like, man, there's a lot of brokenness in that trail. There's a lot of brokenness in the way that I've led my family or led in the church or let it work. Let me remind you of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Jesus died for that mistake, died for those flaws, died for those failures. In Jesus Christ, you are accepted and loved. The blood of Christ has cleansed you, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit, so you can step into the, the leadership role that God has called you. You can step into service, and you can lead in a godly way. There is always hope for godliness in Jesus Christ. And so don't let your failures, don't let your flaws get in the way of what God wants to do in you and through you. And so church, men and women, let us be a community where we all aspire to godliness. Let us be a community where we are all committed to the church and we want to serve in the church. Let us all commit by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in godliness, walk in service. And in that, let's build a culture that raises godly leaders, raises godly pastors, raises godly deacons, raises godly gospel community leaders. Let us be a church where our culture thrives, and that means that we have a healthy leadership culture so that we can go into our city, proclaim the gospel, and make healthy, mature disciples of Christ. Amen.